Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. In today's episode, we are going to discuss nuclear deterrence in this age of great power competition. I am pleased to have with me as my guest today, Dr. Adam Lothar. He is the Director of Multi-Domain Operations at the Army Management Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Uh, he is also the founding director of the U.S. Air Force's School of Advanced Nuclear Deterrence Studies at Kirtland Air Force Base. He is also an author and editor of numerous articles. Uh, before I introduce Adam, though, I do want to highlight that AOC 2022 is just around the corner and is now open for registration. AOC 2022 is going to take place on October 25th to 27th, and the theme of this year's annual symposium and convention is the EMSO Playbook, Maneuvering to Win in a New Era. Uh, You can learn more and to register at 59.crows.org. All right, with that, I'd like to introduce my guest, Dr. Adam Luther. Adam, thanks for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. Dr. Luther, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me this morning. Yeah, thanks thanks for having me on the show. Over the last few months, we've been talking a lot about uh, what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, and a lot of the articles that were coming out were talking about sort of this emerging threat of the use of nuclear weapons. And I started reading up on some of the the, the concepts behind nuclear deterrence, and I thought it would be a good episode or a good topic to discuss on the show. And you were highly recommended, so thank you for joining me. And I wanted to kind of talk about this issue and break it down a little bit uh, for our listeners about how to think about this really important concept of nuclear deterrence in this age of great power competition, which seems to be almost a catch-all phrase to explain a a security environment that no one really understands fully. So to start off, could you share a little bit about what are the principles of nuclear deterrence as it relates to this notion of great power competition and maybe how has it changed over over the recent uh, months? Yeah, so deterrence is a concept that you know it's it's as reaches really back to the post Cold War period in which we had nuclear weapons, and then the Soviets you know it took a few years and then they had nuclear weapons, and then we we came to the conclusion that uh, a war between two great powers, as you know we had in World War II and World War One, where you had the great powers fighting and you had these devastating wars that cost tens of millions of lives well with nuclear weapons that was going to be a heck of a lot worse and so the idea was that we can't fight wars anymore we have to deter them and so the principles of deterrence got fleshed out over time in the late 40s early 50s and into the 60s and the idea is that in the mind of an adversary, you have to convince that adversary that it is far more costly to act on their desire to change the status quo than it is to maintain the status quo. And so the idea is that nuclear weapons could lead to the total devastation of humanity 
And so therefore, maintaining the status quo and keeping sort of any conflict at a minimum uh, is far more beneficial and far more desirable than to go to war like we did in World War One and World War Two, and so largely for you know the better part of seventy years, U.S. national security strategy has always begun with the idea that we will seek to deter, and if deterrence fails, we will fight and win our nation's wars, and so that's our principle. And when you talk about the you know deterrence, there has to be an element then that you, if you're going to possess nuclear weapons, that you are willing to use them. Otherwise, I would imagine deterrence wouldn't work because you could just it just becomes wor- hollow words at that point, and then maybe doesn't keep the conflict away. So how does this? Uh, you know, obviously we we've had instances throughout our sure. history, Cuban Missile Crisis and things of that nature, where it's always been this present threat. But talk a little bit about you know this idea of like the will to use them and what how that takes shape depending on you know on various uh threats. Yeah, so you got to think about deterrence if deterrence credibility equals capability times will. And so to be credible, you have to have capability and then you have to have will. And of course you have to be able to to communicate that you have both capability and will. And so, you know, I often ask people what's more important, capability or will? And, you know, you'll usually get the majority of people say, hmm, I think it's will. And that's absolutely right because if you you can have lots of capability, but if you're not willing to use it, it doesn't matter. Or you can have less capability, but if people know that you you will absolutely fight to the better end, then You can have less capability, but more will. So with nukes, it really is important that you have the will to use them, and you have to be able to communicate that. And so if you go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, for example, one of the things that we did is we put our nuclear forces on alert so you can move up alert levels. And of course, the Russians, they know what we're doing. Uh, We also moved, one of the big things we did is we took, you know, because we were primarily, at that time in 1962, we were a a bomber force. So we took nuclear loaded bombers and moved them to bases in Florida and the deep south and put them wingtip to wingtip so that the Soviets could, using their intelligence capabilities, see that the U.S. had lots and lots of bombers ready to go to Cuba. And nowadays, we generate forces. We raise, elevate, you know, we signal to our adversaries, hey, we're getting serious. There was an operation called Chrome Dome, where we put B-52s with nuclear weapons on them in the air and flew them around 24-7. And that was a clear indication to the Russians that we were very, very serious. And so there's lots of things that you can do. And usually when we think about the nuclear triad, we think about the fact that the ICBMs are, are on alert 24-7. They're never off alert. They can respond in a very, very short period if, you know, if something happens. So, there are already ready leg. And then we think about the bombers, and the bombers, that's the leg that we can use to signal to an adversary. Because if you put nuclear bombers in the air and start flying them somewhere, it takes time to get there. They can be picked up on radar. So you can signal with your adversary, and there's time to say, oh, wait a second. This, this conflict isn't worth that. And then you have the submarines, which if, if 
hypothetically an adversary were to strike our ICBM fields and take them out and then strike our bomber bases and wipe out the bomber force, we would still have submarines at sea that ostensibly our adversary did not know where they were and that they could then, you know, strike the adversary. And that's your sort of your your force that is your most resilient. And so you've got those, that triad, it all serves a purpose. And it's, you know, there's redundant capabilities that show an adversary just how serious you are. And then like ICBMs, like you could hypothetically, you could destroy the bomber force and the and the submarine force with purely conventional conventional torpedo or you know conventional air to air missile you could wipe out the or a strike against a bomber base but the ICBMs you have to use a nuclear missile against the United States homeland which you know that elevates your risk and your commitment and so that's sort of how all that interplays together to show our resolve and then to be able to signal our intent and signal, hey, this is getting serious as we move up that escalation ladder. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today 
where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. And there's been a lot of talk, obviously, for years and years about disarming or reducing the stockpiles of nuclear weapons. And as I was reading some of the articles, you just don't typically think about when you when, when you talk about nuclear weapons, you tend to think of it kind of monolithically, like there's one type of nuclear weapon out there and, and mm-hmm. times a thousand and it does X. But there's different yields. There's just different uses. You mentioned, you know, the tries, obviously the, 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 the nuclear triad, the, the, there's different types of delivery systems how does all that kind of make it even more complicated to kind of get a handle on deterrence and, and, and another nation's capacity for and will for nuclear war or use of nuclear weapons based on what they have and what they're developing? Yeah, so we generally think in terms of most Americans are familiar with strategic deterrence. And you, you conceptualize, you know, uh, ICBMs flying across the poles, and there's just thousands of them. And then all of a sudden in Russia and the United States, you start having these detonations and society's wiped out. And so that's, that's largely strategic deterrence. And then, you know, B-52s and B-2s are going to come in, in in waves and, you know, drop bombs on targets that you can't hit with an ICBM. And submarine launch ballistic missiles have their own targets that are going to be launching because about half the nuclear force is on a submarine. And so there's a very complex way we actually target our our nuclear missiles. But and that's largely strategic deterrence and stratcom and you know it off at Air Force Base in Omaha. That's their responsibility. But you also have what some people will say, they'll call it tactical, which some people hate the word tactical. They say there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon, or they'll call it a theater. I like to use the term low-yield battlefield nuclear weapons, and these are the ones that are not, on the unclassified level, most of the weapons in the U.S. arsenal are you know, the strategic nuclear weapons are somewhere below 200 kilotons, which is about 10 times more than the weapon that destroyed Nagasaki. It's about 10 times larger. Now, we've had megaton-class weapons that were much, much, much bigger. But we don't anymore, so we've as we get more accurate, the yields go down, so the, the warheads get they have a smaller detonation the more accurate you get. And the numbers go down because there's less fewer targets. But then there's also what I fear and what some of us fear is that hypothetically the Russians invade the Baltic states. So uh, Lithuania recently closed. There's a land corridor. If you look at a map from Belarus to Kaliningrad, the Kaliningrad Oblast, which used to be part of Germany and part of Poland, and then the 
the Russians kept it when the Soviet Union fell. And so there's a land corridor across Lithuania that allows the Russians to move material and stuff in there. Well, the Lithuanians closed it a couple weeks ago. And so you could imagine a scenario where the Russians say, that's not acceptable, and then they invade the Baltic states. And then NATO, you have a you trigger an Article 5 defense requirement, and then you could imagine land NATO maneuver land forces come, are going to come to the aid of the Baltic states. And then, so as they're moving, there's this little town in northeast Poland called Sawaki, and there's a little gap between Kaliningrad and Belarus, and there's a main road that the Americans would have to go through. And so what I envision is that as those NATO troops are coming to relieve the Baltic states, that there is the Russians in advance of those troops, not on top, but in advance, there is a low-yield airburst detonation that it doesn't hit the ground, so therefore it doesn't cause a bunch of fallout and stuff. It's an airburst, and basically it's a nuclear, you know, sun-created and and it's a signal because it's far enough in advance of the Americans that it doesn't destroy them, but it's close enough that you can't help but know exactly what it is. And the Russians say, hey, we're willing to escalate. And I, I envision this is a 10 kiloton. So it's a little smaller than Hiroshima, and but it's big enough to really send the signal. And they say, the Russians say, hey, listen, we're escalating. We want you to turn around now or else this could go to all-out nuclear war. And they would do it in the hope that the United States would really go, hmm, are we willing to start trading, you know, Tallinn, Estonia, for Washington or Berlin or Paris or you name it, and that the Russians can achieve a fiat accompli by using a nuclear weapon, not causing mass devastation, but very clearly signaling, and then NATO backs down. And so I personally think those are the most likely scenarios. And those scenarios seem to have a lot more credibility today because of what's going on in Russian Ukraine and even maybe even using that in a Ukraine scenario because of NATO involvement now where we may not have thought that that's very realistic six months ago. Yeah, I mean, you could envision a scenario where maybe Russia detonates a low-yield nuclear weapon on Ukrainian soil to try to get the Ukrainians to capitulate, to try to warn off NATO from increasing its support for uh, the Ukraine, and they would do that. And we're not 100% sure about the Chinese because they don't say all that much. But the Russians, they clearly don't see that, that nuclear weapons equal Armageddon and global annihilation. There's a lot of in-between for the Russians, whereas in the United States and particularly sort of in the U.S. Uh, arms control community, there is this mantra that any nuclear weapons use leads to Armageddon. And that's the Russians don't think that way. The Russians think about the discrete use of nuclear weapons to achieve political ends or military objectives. And they see that, that it's not all or nothing. They see a huge ladder of escalation with lots and lots of possibilities and potential. 
to that difference? I mean, is, is it a matter of what you're trying to accomplish from a sense of your own power as a country, global power, hegemonic power, whatever, like Russia or global power you know, in the United States perspective? Or is it uh, obviously the, the same, the, the arms control community is vocal everywhere. So like why, what what's going into the element of thinking that makes their approach different or gives them a wider kind of menu of options at, when it comes to this where we don't? Yeah, so it's a couple things. So in an authoritarian regime, you largely don't have an arms control community. And then in a free Western democracy like the United States, you have basically sort of two worldviews that are in conflict here. And so you have, you know, what I would call the humanist worldview, which I think largely the arms control community holds, that says that man is inherently good and that man is perfectible and that if we create the right society, the right institutions, you know, we'll get rid of war and crime and all of these sort of ills that we have. And so it's a very optimistic view of human perfection. And so, you know, it's ideological and optimistic. And then you have sort of what I would call the traditional Judeo-Christian worldview that says man is a fallen creature and uh, he's fundamentally wicked and untrustworthy. And that's, so by and large, your your sort of pro-nuke folks would fall into that community. And so they're saying, hey, listen, you know, you know, it'd be great if everybody were good and and, you know, we could end all these things, but we don't think that's possible. So therefore, we need to build, you know, a strong defense. And so for your Russians, where they don't have to have these kinds of debates and you don't have to win public opinion, they can create menu options for using nuclear weapons that to a largely free and pros- you know prosperous American public, they say, yeah, geez, I don't really ever want to have to go down that road where we use a onesies and twosies of nuclear weapons, and then we have to worry about escalation. They say, let's build an arsenal that keeps the Russians at bay or the Chinese at bay, and then let's really not think about how we would use them discreetly. It's a, a difficult thing for two types of societies. And we, we talk a lot about this from an electromagnetic spectrum warfare community where we, as a free society, we have a lot more self-imposed constraints on how we think and then we act than various other peer competitors out there. There seems to be a, a very similar conversation that these communities have. In your estimation, you know, from the U.S. perspective and the kind of the competing views that determine how we approach this, what are some of the assumptions at play, either true or false arguments, false assumptions on either side that, you know, we need to kind of do a better job of communicating or working through in order to come to a a diplomatic solution to to some of these conflict? Well, so I think a lot of American politicians and sort of folks within the Beltway uh, have this view that they mirror image the Russians or the Chinese, and they say, well, geez, they You know, they may be Russian, they may be Chinese, but in the end, they're like me. They just want to make money. They, you know, they want a nicer house, a better car, you know, better, and they want to go out to the nice restaurants. You know, they want the same basic things I do. They're materialists just like we're materialists. And so, therefore, we can speak to their material needs and we can sort of 
move away from this kind of threat of nuclear war. And what I don't think they understand is that there are, drawing a blank, you, the, the great Greek Thucydides, you know, the great Greek philosopher of war said that there are three things that motivate, you know, humans, and that's fear, honor, and interest. And we sort of forget that honor is a big motivating factor for a lot of societies, particularly societies that don't have a strong materialist bent, then honor is, plays a much greater role. And so therefore, we, we sort of dismiss it and we focus on the things that we value. And so that mirror imaging, I think, dis, does us a disservice. And so if we thought about more what creates honor for you know, Russia and China, highly honor-based societies, we would do better off in understanding ways that we can help reach sort of a stable, peaceful international system. And don't assume they're like us, because they're not. We just can't assume that. And that was probably one of, like George W. Bush sort of assumed that everybody wanted to be free and democratic. And, and so therefore, you know, we had this effort to impose democracy all over the world. And it didn't really work because it it didn't give credence to those deep cultural and other differences that countries and societies may have that are different from ours. So, you know, taking a look at the world today, obviously it, we have the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We have a lot of attention being turned to China and there's a lot of posturing right now, particularly with Taiwan, as we knew there would be and, and there has been, you know, for for a long time. But obviously, peer competitors around the world are using the, the current global situation to their own benefit to kind of continue to advance some of their goals, um, North Korea and Iran and so forth. From a nuclear deterrence standpoint, looking forward, what are you looking for in terms of steps or reforms or actions from the U.S. that really kind of put us in the best position possible to to maintain a strong position in the global security discussion? I would submit that we need to have capabilities that are similar to all of our adversaries. So we can't just have just high-end capabilities like you know, str- strategic ICBMs. When our adversaries like the Russians have somewhere between three and 6,000 you know, low-yield sort of tactical, short, medium, intermediate-range uh, nuclear weapons. They can be airborne. They can be ballistic missiles. They can be all sorts of different types of delivery cruise missiles. And so we're creating a gap. And the what we know is that the Russians look at that gap and say, hmm, how can we take advantage? So I want to close that gap by creating similar capabilities so that the Russians know whatever we have, the, uh, the Americans have some sort of equivalent. That, that would be one thing. And then if you take the Chinese, the Chinese are looking to engage in what they call informatized warfare, which this, you know, this goes back to the existence of the old crows where, you know, both the Russians are really good at electronic warfare and then the Chinese are getting good at electronic warfare, cyber, the Russians are very good at disinformation. So things that sort of revolve around what the old crows are good at and exist for, those are going to play an important part in our nuclear future because like nuclear command and control, 
in C3. Uh, that is going to be, you know, whether it's uh, as we move from an analog system to a digital system, we have to worry about hacking. We have to worry about how do we effectively communicate. Like when we have to communicate on, you know, RF bands or whenever, if we're trying to talk to satellites and we have to worry about are the Russians or the Chinese trying to jam or are they trying to use, you know, directed energy to disrupt or destroy? You know, we've got, a, because of the cyber and space domains and how they're integrated into the integrated tactical warning and attack assessment capability and its limited capabilities, we have to be very, very careful. And then we have to think about how do we mitigate our adversaries because they're not going to just launch nuclear weapons. They're going to try to hack us, jam us, laze us, blind us. You know, they're going to try to create noise. They're going to do all these things first so that if they do use weapons, that we don't see it coming. That's a great insight. And I think it's, you know, it gets to this point where a lot of these communities and leaders, whether it's AOC or, you know, outside organizations like AOC or internal agencies in DOD need to keep this conversation going to make sure that our communities are talking and understanding the complexity of the threats and uh, capabilities out there because adversaries are going to always go after where we're weak or where we're not paying attention to, to, to accomplish. And so I think that that's a, that's a great insight. So I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. Well, that, that is all the time we have for this episode of From the Crow's Nest. Dr. Lothar, I, I greatly appreciate you taking time to, to come on the show. I would love to have you back on to go a little bit more in depth later in the year, but uh, do appreciate you taking time to join me here. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Adam Lothar, for joining me for this important discussion. I also want to reiterate that AOC 2022 is now open for registration, and you can learn more at 59.crows.org. As always, we'd like to hear from our listeners, so please visit crows.org or rate and subscribe to our podcast wherever you download. Uh, We'd like to hear your thoughts, feedback, and recommendations on how to improve the show. Thanks for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.